Hey, wait, I got some salt to rank. Forever rank in this Beatles songs. Hey, wait, I got a song to rank. Nice. How do you like that one today? That was excellent. Thank you. That was Nirvana. <laughs> just so you know. Just, just in case. Just were... in case you were confused, that yeah. was that was the Nirvanas. The Nirvana. <laughs> Nirvana. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to episode 20-deuce, 22 of Ranking the Beatles. Hope everybody out there is having a good day, a good week uh, in the future, because we're taping this uh, October 27th, and uh, by the time this airs, we will have had a presidential election, mm-hmm. and Lord only knows what is going to be going on when this airs. Wait, I hope future me is happier than present me. Yes. Um, This episode will be dropping uh, November 10th. The following day will be my birthday. Yay! So, happy in advance birthday to me. Um, Hopefully it will be a a happy birthday. I hope so too. Fingers crossed. What should we do for your birthday? Uh, Probably going to drink. Well, that's a given. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Um, get your favorite takeout? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe we... um, Maybe we just drink. No, we have to eat. <laughs> uh, beer has often been called liquid bread. Okay, we're too old for that. We nah. can't. We can't do that anymore, especially on a school night. Fine. Fine. All right, mom. Whatever, mom. You're not my dad. <laughs> Shut up. But uh, yeah. So. Happy birthday, future you. Thank you, present wife. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't quite know how to answer that. Nice. But um, anyway. Uh, assuming that the world is still uh, existing, um, we are continuing on with the show to yes. continue to provide a uh, little hour or so of uh, fun conversation during what have been some strange and topsy-turvy times. We made a commitment to you, dear listeners. We're not going anywhere, no matter what they do, no matter what they say. We will uphold this commitment. Ranking the Beatles is here to stay. And with that in mind, yeah, man... Super excited about this show today, y'all. Um, we've got a doozy of a guest. I don't even know why he agreed to join us. I feel like we're swinging out of our league today. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Um, no disrespect to all of our guests. Yeah. This is... We're going next level, guys. Uh, our guest today is a two-time Tony Award and Grammy-winning actor and musician. That's a half a EGOT right there, y'all. Yeah. Uh, He's made his name over the years on both stage and screen. He starred in Broadway productions such as The Who's Tommy, Assassins, and Fun Home, the latter two of which he won Tony Awards for, including Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical for Fun Home. Wow. Legit. Two Tonys? Two Tonys. Wow. Yeah. Wait, isn't that a restaurant? That is a restaurant (laughs) here in New Orleans. (laughs) Uh, His television work has included such hit shows as Fringe, Mindhunter, Gotham, The Blacklist, which I love, uh, The Good Wife, which I love, which you love, and Madam Secretary, (laughs) while his film work includes Marvel's Ant-Man and The Wasp, Cirque de Freak, and The Mexican, which starred a very attractive Brad Pitt in the early 2000s. I remember that. I was like... How could I look like that guy? Are there unattractive Brad Pitt? 
maybe there's times when he's less attractive, yeah. but he's always attractive. Yeah. Oh, I, mean, I did see like a throwback photo to like the premiere of Interview with the Vampire. Do you yeah. remember that? Oh yeah. There were some choices made. I'm sure. On all accounts, <laughs> I'm from sure. everyone. I, I, can I was only like, imagine. oh, so we're going all in on the vampire look in real life too. Mm. Yeah, method acting. Yeah, genius. It was a lot. Yeah, I can see that. There were hair choices. Ooh. <laughs> well, we're not going to focus too much on Brad Pitt hair choices today. Okay. It's a whole other, epi- whole, whole other episode. I did see like a meme that he like um, changes his hair to be like whoever he's dating. <laughs> which was pretty funny to me. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Okay. Dear That's listeners. enough of that rabbit hole. <laughs> uh, this is not ranking Brad Pitt's hair. Right. <laughs> but podcast idea. Uh, as a musician, that. our guest has been the touring guitarist for Bob Mold of Husker Du. He also put out a solo album that featured appearances from members of Teenage Fan Club, Slater Kinney, The Posies, and Sonic Youth. Holy cow. Uh, he currently fronts the Americana country band Loose Cattle with longtime collaborator Kimberly Kay, who is a delightful person. Um, and how about this? The United States Conference of Mayors and the Board of Directors of Americans for the Arts honored our guest in 2017 with the Citizen Artist Award, which recognizes artists who have made the highest contributions both in their professional artistic endeavors to advance the arts as well as in their personal charitable pursuits to improve the world. Wow. What have you done I know. with your life? <laughs> Certainly not gotten an award from a single mayor. Nevertheless, a conference of mayors. Valid. That's amazing. Get on it, Breedis. He's he's pretty much like the best person. He's a good man. Yeah. And he's agreed to be on our podcast. So he's very charitable, apparently. Okay. I'm going to be on my best behavior today. A good idea. Friends of the pod, please welcome to the show, Michael Severus. Woo! Michael, how are you, my friend? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Greetings. It's good to see you. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. How are things up in uh, New York right now? They're, you know, despite what you may hear in certain media, it is not a ghost town <laughs> by, by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> yeah. Um, in my neighborhood, life has really kind of returned to the streets, um, in some ways even more so because every restaurant has outdoor dining now mm-hmm. so so people are around a lot but i gotta say it's it's impressively like 95 or more percent mask wearing everywhere good. you go nice yeah that's, that's good great. to see yeah i think you know it it was really scary here right. in march and april and people you know learned firsthand just how serious it is and and also learned firsthand that pretty simple steps can actually drastically reverse things and you know now it's like one of the safest places in the country to be which you've never been able to say about me right (laughs) Right. and we've kind of had kind of the the same thing here where it was initially really bad in louisiana and and new orleans especially post mardi gras um and then you know there was that period where i think everybody really understood kind of the gravity of the situation and really was committed to it um and things got pretty good for a long while and now we're kind of riding this weird wave back up and down and you know yeah just seeing where it takes us but yeah there was actually like a tweet from the mayor the other day that was like come visit new orleans we're super safe here we're doing great and everyone's like yeah but (laughs) the tourists are the one one that aren't wearing the mask so like please don't encourage them to come because they're just going to come here and bring us their plague so like can, can you just not can, can you not? Yeah. Can, <laughs> keep your plague in Pittsburgh. 
I mean, maybe yeah, not I was, Pittsburgh. I, I was, you know, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh was okay. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but I was, you know, I was in New Orleans at Mardi Gras. And so I, like everybody else, hoped that I must have been exposed to it at some point. Yeah. Then, and then just, mm-hmm. you know, was, you know, one of the lucky asymptomatic people. But no such luck. Yeah. Isn't it weird that we're like, man, I didn't get that virus. Darn. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm good what with it. What a weird time to live in. I'm good with it. Because, like, yeah. some people, I mean, yeah, if you were asymptomatic, totally fine. But, like, right. it's not like you're guaranteed that. So yeah. I'm just going to keep staying at home. <laughs> yeah. Not- and not guaranteed immunity afterwards either. So. Exactly. Right. Which right. really seems like that's a shitty way to be a virus. <laughs> come on, COVID. Come on, like, come on, nice. COVID. Jeez. Yeah, quit being a jerk, man. Just like one and done. <laughs> well, let's let's get rid of the COVID conversation. Yes. Um, welcome to Ranking the Beatles. We're uh, excited to have you here. Um, yeah, we were looking over your bio and looking through Wikipedia and different articles about you. Um, you've really had a really interesting career with a foot in both uh, you know, in both acting and in, in music. So I kind of want to touch on all of that a little bit if possible. Um, sure. but let's start, I guess, back at the beginning. When do you first discover the Beatles? When does that enter your orbit? Well, I was, I grew up in West Virginia. And so, you know, this was the, the days of pre MTV and, and so most of, and I was the oldest of my, my, uh, siblings. Mm-hmm. So, I didn't have an older brother to kind of turn me on to the Beatles earlier and um and it was West Virginia so you know the 60s kind of hit around you know 75 and <laughs> so, so I with the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and like a lot of stuff I was kind of a late arrival like I I got the stuff that was current on the radio at the time mm-hmm. but but for the deeper stuff and for the 60s stuff I kind of came to it later, which I always really kind of loved ultimately because it meant that it wasn't just the the soundtrack to all of my mistakes growing up and it wasn't just something that was on all the time. It was something I actually sought out and actually right. explored and listened to from an older perspective than, you know, than just being eight and hearing it on the radio although i'm sure i did hear Beatles songs on the radio when i was eight too yeah um so it was i was kind of like a late arrival but then i really you know really soaked it up as soon as i as soon as i got turned on to it i remember i remember sitting in the dining hall in college with a friend of mine jeffrey owens who um uh he was on the cosby show he was yeah um, he was the guy more famously who got, you know, outed for actually having a having job. Having a job. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. He um, was uh, Elvin. Elvin. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was one of, one of my best friends in school. We both went to Yale undergrad. That's amazing. And, and he is a crazy, crazy Beatles fan. In really? fact, if you if you want to talk to him sometime on the show you can spend like a whole week with him. 100% yes. Pass me that email address. (laughs) Yeah, I will give it to you. Um, So one of the first days in the cafeteria, we sat there and we sang through Sergeant Pepper from the first note to the end, like sang all the words, sang the guitar solos, sang the drum break, sang the, you know, sound collages, like the whole thing. Yeah. That's all. Aw- wow. <laughs> yeah. That's so fun. I don't know. I don't even know why. It just sort of started and we didn't leave until we had finished the whole record. 
<laughs> I mean, this is what we did. Today. That's a very college moment. I, I can yeah. think of many a nights right. doing the same thing to a variety of different albums, you know, but that's, yeah. that's fantastic. And yeah. was, was there a, a record or a song that first, you know, kind of grabbed you and made you go, Oh, this is really, this is something special. This is cool. Well, I mean, I think it was, I think it was that record really because of its sort of, you know, hint at a, a thematic element, you know, mm -hmm. from the design, <clears throat> design aspect to the, um, the sequencing and everything else. I think that kind of, uh, triggered my, my theatrical narrative kind of mind, mm -hmm. um, and I think also that it had to do with, again, me sort of coming to them later. So that was a slightly more current record. And then I sort of had to work backwards to, you know, their earlier records and, right. and stuff. And, and then and then afterwards. But that record, I think, was a real mind opening in, in all kinds of ways. And were you already uh, acting at this point? When, well, I, I guess yeah, I'm, I'm I thinking had... initially like when you have this great moment, you know, in college, are you already like doing like theater in school, things like that? Yeah. I had started doing stuff when I was really young because my dad was a college music professor. Mm -hmm. um, and so when the colleges that he was teaching and needed a kid for the school production, <laughs> I was often the kid. They would like go shake <laughs> the faculty and try to get somebody to, to donate their child to the college. Lend us your child. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I started in second grade. I was in uh, Bertolt Brecht's Caucasian Chalk Circle. So you know, wow. I started I started yeah. with Brecht at second grade, and you know, there was there was sort of nowhere to go from there, but but deeper. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I but I went to college. I I applied to a bunch of um, conservatories and things because I you know I grew up doing community theater and and high school theater and stuff. Um, but I wasn't certain because I had the example of my parents who were both artists and performers. My mom was a modern dancer um, and they had both chosen not to have professional performing careers because you know, they wanted to have a family and they wanted uh, to not have as itinerant a life as you would need to probably. Mm -hmm. So I had a, a pretty healthy respect for what it took to have a career in the theater so i wasn't entirely certain that that's what i wanted to do so i wanted to go to a place where i would get a full education in addition to being able to do you know continue to do acting and stuff so i'd been doing stuff for a while and um i did a lot of theater at yale but i also played music and i you know i was playing in bands from the time i was in junior high mm -hmm. on and we weren't good but we were loud so that's, that's all that mattered what kind of and stuff are you playing if we did any if we did any beatles songs um i think i think we did i want to hold your hand um but we were doing more you know it was we were playing deep purple and we were playing riding the storm out and we were yeah. playing uh um, Aerosmith then because you know it was the 70s in mm -hmm. West Virginia and that's what was on the radio right. also we somehow our music teacher uh, decided to offer a class in rock band like you know like marching band sure and so so me and four other guys got to have a period once or twice a week and then the school bought instruments for us Whoa. and, we, that's and awesome. we got to like 
and and some kid some college kid from marshall university came over and would like teach us to play you know proud mary and and um the 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 great thing for us and the bad thing for the rest of this junior high was that in order to pay for the instruments the deal was we would play all the school dances that year (laughs) nice so they were stuck having us and we would play like you know 10 minute versions of space trucking because you know you could learn the one riff and then just play it over and over right all take solos and none of us smoke on the water for 30 minutes yeah (laughs) none of us could solo but we all took like two solos just to stretch it out because we only knew like eight songs for the whole dance (laughs) (laughs) that's incredible oh yeah so that may have been why we didn't do so many beatles songs because they were too short so short so (laughs) short i i've really i really realized that in the last few months i've got um a Beatles uh, tribute band that I do with um, Andre Bourne and Dave Pomerlau from Johnny oh, yeah. Sketch. And that kind of all, it kind of all fell together after those uh, tribute shows that we did a few years back. Yeah, yeah. And so we're doing these shows that you, these kind of like porch uh, concerts or like private backyard things. Cool. And um, last weekend, Andre and I played outside of Tipitina's and they had us from 12 to two and we're going, there are so many songs to be played in a two hour span. <laughs> My God. Like, like you get That's to so like, true. you know, hour 45, you're like, do we need to redo anything? Like, <laughs> but uh, what about your siblings? I know you said you are the oldest of. Did I hear that right? Yeah. Yeah. I have a younger sister who's a little over a year younger and then a brother who's seven years younger. Are either of them in the arts? Yeah, my sister was a ballerina with New York City Ballet for a number wow. of years, and um, and she now has her own company manufacturing and designing uh, dancewear and Pilates wear and stuff. Oh, she wow. used to like retool all her own leotards and things, and then started figuring, well, I should just like make them from scratch. And, yeah. Um, and my brother is an actor, and he's <clears throat> he's been on Broadway and TV and and. So, you know, my parents sent us to good schools, hoping that we would, you know, get real careers. And right. <laughs> still somehow ended up in the arts. That's fantastic. Do you ever get to, to work with your brother? We did one episode of Madam Secretary together. Yeah. And and the casting people allegedly didn't even realize that we were brothers. It's like, <laughs> you know, oh, my gosh. You know, the last name. Um, but we were we were in one scene together that was just probably one of my favorite most fun days on a set anywhere just getting to be in the same frame as my brother yeah that's so cool that's fantastic you know i i think you know hearing about your upbringing is really interesting because uh you know one of the things that i'm kind of noticing a parallel in is you know growing up in a situation where you're kind of encouraged to uh immerse yourself in the arts and experience different things and learn it um while also maintaining like the healthy idea of like it is very challenging to make a career in that, you know, that's something that I think, you know, the Beatles kind of grew up in similar environments where, you know, John went to an art school, you know, Paul uh, comes from a very musical family. And so they were all kind of raised in this musical environment uh, while also being told, you know, like you have to make money, you have to provide. So like they got that kind of drive to work. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because that was true also of like Pete Townsend, mm-hmm. who I got to know really well doing Tommy. And and it was true of the Stones, too. Like, you know, they're everybody thinks of them as these, you know, wild rock and roll guys. But like they were 
art school guys, a lot of them, yeah. you know, every band had at least, you know, part of the band was from that tradition. And, and also I think it's partly just growing up in England, the arts aren't considered, uh, or certainly weren't this sort of thing that is for an elite class. Yes. Like everybody mm -hmm. in the working class knew the songs of the day from the stage and, mm -hmm. and, and could afford to go see West End theater and stuff. And, yeah. and it was, you know, it wasn't thought of as some snooty elitist thing. And so I think, and you know, the, down at the pub, people, everybody sang. You know, right, and right. Mm -hmm. And you're yeah, just kind of surrounded by it or parlor music at home, you mm -hmm. know. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I kept noticing, and I noticed this really at first when we went to England in 2017, is like the Christmas pantomime shows. Right. Um, and I started kind of looking into the history of those, and I see a real through line for that to like kind of the absurdity of like the Beatles humor on on film and things, and then it kind of extends Absolutely. even further to like your Monty Pythons, uh, you know, and things like that that are just like so outlandish that they're not it's not slapstick. It's meant to make you like use a little bit of your brain. You know, it's not low com It's not low hanging fruit. Um, right. But I think no, it's, yeah. it's wit. It's, you know, exactly. it's really, really clever. It can be outrageous and silly, but it's, you know, there's always a real wit to it. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I love that. We've already, we've already found a way to wrap it up. I love it. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's take a quick break. We're going to be right back and we'll jump into today's, into uh, today's song. Okay. We'll be right back. Great. All right, everybody, we are back with Michael Cerverus. We are going to rank some Beatles. Michael, are you ready, my friend? I am so ready. Excellent. Uh, would you please mind using your musical skills and giving me a drum roll? Coming in at number 196 is Till There Was You. There were bells on a hill but I never heard them ringing No, I never heard them at all Till there was you There were birds in the sky But I never saw them ringing No, I never saw them at all Till there was you Then there was music and wonderful roses they tell me all right a history of till there was you uh written by playwright and songwriter meredith wilson in 1950 till there was you was one of 40 songs the composer wrote over the course of seven years for his first and most successful musical the music man uh which i didn't realize it took seven years for him to completely i guess completely write the show the play well, it's not it's not all that surprising. I think people would be amazed if they learned how long from like when they first think of Conception working on something to... to when it when it actually happens. Yeah. yeah, you know the out of town tryouts and the rewrites and you know these days like five thousand readings of it right. for you know backers and all the rest. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, learning, yeah, it's, learning it's new a things. Much longer. Like seven years is probably on the longer side, but three to five is kind of minimum wow wow yeah that's, that's an investment crazy. of time and energy yeah with no guarantees right. yeah wow but uh so this song was actually released as a single in november of 57 uh one month before the play actually premiered in broadway that year and the single was sung by 17 year old sue rainey 
However, it was a version by Peggy Lee that first caught Paul's ear, courtesy of an older cousin who used to watch him and his brother Michael. So on January 1st of 1962, uh, the Beatles auditioned for Decca Records. At Brian Epstein's request, uh, their set for the day is very diverse. It showcases their ability to really play across different genres, rock, pop, novelty, and show tunes. Now, Lennon feels that the set doesn't accurately depict the band's status as a rock and roll band, but Brian, as well as Paul, both agree that the diversity of the set gives them a chance to appeal to a larger crowd. Now, among the tracks recorded that day was was Till There Was You. So famously, Decca declines to sign the band, but Brian is able to take the tapes from the session and use them to shop around to additional labels. So after being turned down by literally every label in Britain, except for one, Brian submits the tracks to George Martin at Parlophone. Now, George Martin's actually pretty unimpressed by these tapes on the whole, except for one song that sticks out to him, Till There Was You. Uh, the strength of the vocal from Paul and George's guitar work catches the ear, and he decides to give them an audition to see what else they can do. The song is essentially the reason that George Martin gives them their shot. There were bells on a hill, but I never heard ringing. No, I never heard them at all till there was you. Uh, which Absolutely who would have thought? Yeah. Uh, so the Beatles record the song over two sessions in July of '63, uh, and the only change they make during uh, during it from the original demo, aside from replacing Ringo or Pete Best with Ringo, uh, the only real change they make is taking Ringo off the drum kit and putting him on bongos. Uh, so the track is released in the UK uh, on the With the Beatles album, and in America on Meet the Beatles in early '64. Paul actually claims that he was not aware that it was from the Music Man when they first recorded it. Uh, however, he was no doubt aware of it by the time of their Royal Command performance for the Queen in 63, as he announces it from that show. The band also famously performs it on the Ed Sullivan Show upon their arrival in the States. So, why do I have Till There Was You at number 196? Uh, so I think this, one of the strengths of the Beatles is that more often than not, they really make the right decisions, uh, You know, whether it's on arrangement, song selection, melody, who to work with, what to do. Um, they've got a pretty great track record historically. Uh, so it should be noted that while John complains that this song is a poor choice for their audition, uh, Brian Epstein and Paul are, r- are right on with the idea of showing that uh, their ability to kind of cross over to different audiences and genres. Uh, and the fact that this song is literally like the one that gets in their shot and it's such an outlier from what you would expect from like a rock band, I think you've got to give the two of them a lot of credit to push this. Can you imagine like how smug Paul was? Oh, you know he loved it. <laughs> he loved it. Oh God. Just like oh, probably, okay, it John. Probably set the tone for the rest of the band's <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God, that's what did it. Like that's, that's the moment. What, this yes. was the moment. Yes. Sure, John, you're the leader. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, So personally, you know, the more saccharine side of their catalog isn't always my favorite. However, when this song does come on, I think it's a really enjoyable song for what it is. Um, Paul's vocal is just chock full of personality and charm. Uh, His timbre on it is just damn near unbeatable. His voice is so good on this song. I think the band, the way that they pull it off shows that for young musicians and young like rock and rollers, uh, they've really got an understanding of the idea of playing with restraint and dynamic. And I think that's something um, that sets them apart. Uh, you know, George's guitar solo is absolutely gorgeous. You can tell he must have really worked to compose the whole melody of it. Um, it's a lot jazzier than his usual work around this time. Uh, and th- th- sometimes the trickier things he clunks in a live setting. But 
on most all of the live setting, the live versions of this, especially the Royal Command performance and Ed Sullivan, he is like note perfect, pristine every time. Um, you know, the overall package of it is definitely out of the norm for a you know quote unquote rock and roll band. Uh, but it also kind of maybe serves as a signpost to the band that if they want to, they can do just about anything they want. And I think that may have been the kind of push that John needs as a writer to start branching out. Because going into the end of 63, Lennon and McCartney, but particularly John, are about to go on a tear of like untouchable writing and creative growth uh, with virtually no ties to hold them down. And I say that because I think John, as a Beatle, like qu- quality and quantity wise, hits a peak in 64 that Paul matches in maybe 67, 68. Um, and I'm not, I'm not knocking either one. I just think that's when they each kind of like hit these, like these streaks. Um, but on the whole, I think it's a great track. I think they absolutely knock it out of the park. And I think it's a really nice little addition to the, to the catalog. Uh, Michael, what do you think? The floor is yours. Um, well, I would agree with everything that, that you said. I think it's, um, it's, I really kind of I might have even ranked it a little higher just mm-hmm. because it's it's uh outlier kind of status and 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 I really one of the things I love most about it is that it seems so sincere and genuine it's not you know it's not ironic it's not a, a piss take of the thing and it's not sort of like rocked up or or you know they don't they don't try to do it they do anything with it they just play the song right um, I was listening to the Birds Tambourine Man uh, record earlier today, mm-hmm. and at the end of that record, they do a cover of "We'll Meet Again," the British sort of music hall mm-hmm. song, and and that is like a a very they you know they birdsify it and they and it's a you can just feel like they're they're being witty about playing this song and right. and the liner notes say this was the first of what became a habit of theirs of, of doing an ironic kind of song at the end of the as the last track of every album and and the Beatles not doing that I think is is so says something you know really interesting about them as musicians and as 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 people and you know and i was also thinking about because this was this would have been post cavern club days post hamburg right would it there are versions of them doing it in hamburg um i think they started playing it kind of towards the latter period of the cavern era like yeah as things are starting to pick up it goes into their set so like you know well, so 62, when they audition for DECA, they're still definitely at the Cavern, and they're playing it at the audition. Um, right. So at least 60, probably late 61, they start playing it. Because it makes perfect sense, like, if you're... That that whole way of becoming a band by just playing hours and hours every night and having to, to get the attention and keep the attention of a wide variety of people every night. And it makes perfect sense sort of saying, oh, you know what we should do? We should do a cover of this, you know, of this song. It's the last thing people will think we should do. And it'll, you know, it'll just, it'll be great to have in our pockets because there'll be a a time in most nights when we should play that song. Right. And, and, and then that it then becomes part of their, uh, their entree into a, a record deal and the rest of their career via George Martin is kind of 
perfect, you know. Yeah. But I, I really love, I think you're you're right, Paul's vocal performance on it. It's so, it's like so uh, back praised and so jazzy and croony, but but like legit, like he's yeah. not, he's mm-hmm. not playing at it. He's just doing it sincerely. Um, or, you know, it sounds sincere anyway. And he's got a knack um, at that, I think, of really yeah. like putting a a charismatic performance across that doesn't seem like a performance. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a little twinkle mm-hmm. in it too, that, you know, you can hear, you can hear an irony to it if you want to, but if you want to just appreciate it as a, you know, a sweet rendition of a, of a tender little song, it totally works as that too. Yeah. And I think you're right. George's solo is, is beautiful and, and considered and, um, I think it just it gives such a great uh, broadening to the your idea of who they are, mm-hmm. and I think it would be so smart of them to include it in their in their audition uh, set list. Yeah. Well, I think like and, most of the stuff, like I found most of the stuff that they cover, uh, probably all of the stuff that they cover, it it really comes from a place of appreciation and yeah. not like I I can't think like Do you know of any? like sort of covers that they do that come from a place of like trying to be ironic and kind of no. crummy about it, like poking no. fun at it. like it's they're from a place of like, we love this and like our, you know, we want to put it on our record or like we want to release it as a single or, or what, whatever they did. You know, I, I think it was always praise and mm-hmm. never, you know, just mocking. <laughs> I think I think their irony in anything, you know, would maybe come across in a live performance. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, and that may be where you see Paul kind of do his thing where he's kind of like making eyes at everybody and doing that right. Paul thing. Um, you know, maybe John's, you know, making some rude gesture during the song. Like, <laughs> right. You know, that's I, I yeah. think that's where they where they kind of take the piss out of things. But on record, I think they're very um it's a classic case of they don't take themselves seriously, but they take their work seriously. Yeah. And it is, it is also a really well-crafted, beautiful little nugget of a song it is. too. It I mean, really the melody is, is, is great. And, mm. and I think, I think they clearly recognize it and, and value it on its own terms as a, as a song. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's one of the things I, that I read was, you know, one of the, I guess kind of considerations Paul kind of got from an early age from his father was learning the importance of, of melody and, you know, being able to appreciate things that while they may on surface, not be, you know, your band's cup of tea, you know, a good melody is a good melody, no matter what you do with it. Yeah. And, uh, and he's got the ability to kind of take that and, and bring it to the table and, you know, and still do it justice. Yeah. And really, it all it I think what it really does is serves as just like, like you said, like a broadening of the palette of what they are able to do, and things yeah. like that. You know, I think give um, a license going forward to. Now, granted, some people don't like it, but the stuff that John always calls Paul's Paul's granny music shit. <laughs> you know, like your "When I'm 64," uh, "Martha, yeah. My Dear," things like that. You know, songs that are hot topics in this <laughs> in this Beatle <laughs> fan world. Um, yeah, but some of those songs are also classics, like for a reason, because yeah. those songs are just great. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say it's it's really interesting that that's the song that caught George Martin's ear, mm-hmm. um, and 
He really and didn't from, have a background with rock or pop, though, because he was coming from that, more, you know, comedy records and I think I think live theater performance records. Well, that makes sense in in my as a segue into to my little brush with Beatles greatness. Um, I never got to meet any of the Beatles. I've only seen Paul play mm -hmm. uh, live, but um but when I was doing Tommy on Broadway and we went to do the cast album, Pete Townsend asked George Martin to produce it. Wow. So George Martin produced the, the Tommy cast album and I got to, you know, be coached through a recording session by by George Martin. That's and, amazing. Wow. Yeah. And but it makes it make I can see very clearly why Pete wanted George to produce it because he wanted it to be still be a rock and roll record but it had to be had to tell the story in a way that the original album hadn't mm -hmm. um and uh and i have two really favorite memories from that whole session um one was when it came time for me to do i'm free and a couple of my solo things because the way those cast albums get made they're the whole record is done in like two days mm -hmm. wow. and because you've been doing it every night eight times a week, you know, up to that point. So the band knows it and the singers know it, but there's also just not much time or money to do it. Right. So it's done really quickly. And so you'll do a lot of the ensemble stuff and the chorus stuff. And then like in one afternoon, you do all of your solo stuff, which mm -hmm. can be exhausting. Sure. But, um, but I remember I was getting ready to start, you know, in on that. And, uh, George mostly stayed in the control room, but he came into the the vocal booth to at the beginning of this session just to talk to me. And basically, because I'm sure he could hear, even in the silence on the other end of the mic, my terror, the, you know, this, you know, trying to to not even compete, but just not be too far behind uh, Roger Daltrey's right. versions of all this stuff. I can't and imagine said, the pressure you must have felt to be trying to sing, like you said, Roger Daltrey's parts. For, for George, George Martin, Martin. <laughs> yeah, with Pete yeah. Townsend, with probably Townsend in the studio. Did. Jesus oh, Christ! Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but George came in and he said, "Look, you, you don't, I, I don't want you to be Roger Daltrey. Roger's great, but I, but that's not what this is, and that's not who you are. And you just need to be. You are Tommy now, and so we just need to capture what you do. Mm -hmm. So let's just do that." And it was really great. It didn't dispel my, my <laughs> terror much, but you know, it was it was awfully good of him uh, to do that. And then my other favorite moment was uh, Pete had written a song for the parents called "I Believe My Own Eyes," that just for the um, for the play for mm -hmm. the, the musical, and it culminates, and then it goes into "Smash the Mirror." Um, and at the end of Smash the Mirror, there's a, she takes a chair and hits this mirror and it shatters. And there's a big shattering orchestral uh, swirl thing. And um, so I was in the control room. I'd finished my stuff. And so I was now just hanging out, you know, watching George Martin work. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, like you would. As you would. Yeah. And, and his son Giles was doing a lot of the hands-on stuff. And George oh, wow. was yeah. kind of, you know, the ears in the room. Um, but so we were listening to the orchestra recording that whole smash and this big swirling thing. 
at the end of which it just kind of hangs in the air for a few minutes and and George Martin <laughs> just starts going woke up got out of bed because <laughs> it was like exactly the same kind of thing it was that you know yeah. swirling orchestral wow <laughs> and it was like oh yeah because you were yeah that was you you did, did you did yeah, that you, you can, yeah. yeah you were there I see what you're doing there George wow yeah that was amazing that's awesome so for, for all of his like you know theatrical bent it makes perfect sense that he would respond to that yeah. song of the Beatles you know yeah and because and he he did a whole he did a lot of um a lot of score work outside of just his work with the Beatles and other you right. know other pop bands at the time he did a lot of score work uh, and especially, even on the on the Beatles films I know a hard day's night the American version like the first half of the Beatles songs and the second half for the George Martin orchestra version of Beatles songs, oh, wow. which are just, in, they're incredibly catchy for what, you know, for, for just orchestral songs. Like they're just, there's a, a, there's a groove to all of them where it seems like he's like picking up, like picking up some pop tips and putting them in you know orchestral <laughs> songs. It's very cool. It's very cool. Very cool. Uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to, I wanted to ask you as, as I'm thinking about, you know, like looking at John saying, you know, how this song is, it doesn't fit the role of the Beatles. It doesn't fit what he thinks they should be. So then he still has to go and, and put on the right performance and make the, and sell the track as a musician. Also, I want to kind of tap into both sides of your brain here. I've kind of felt this sometimes when you're singing a song or performing something, you know, whether it's as a musician or, or whether you're, you're acting on stage, when you're singing from the perspective of a role or whether it's, you know, in a show or whether you're, you're, you're playing with a band, how do you find yourself approaching what you do? Like, I guess I'm looking at it like, is John, you know, when John's selling that role on stage or on record, you know, do you view that same as kind of like a similar, uh, a similar thing as acting like a similar kind of performance. And like for you, when you're acting versus when you're playing, um, you know, does that come from a similar place or is it like a different side of your brain completely? This is a really interesting, really complicated question for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's probably different for for everybody, but I have a real, because I had the example in my father of what a musician was, and that was somebody who like dedicated their whole life to it and and truly mastered his instrument, which is piano and, you know, reads and knows theory and has dedicated you know just his entire life to it whereas i kind of picked up a guitar when i was a kid and essentially taught myself to play and and developed a really good ear but still don't really read for i can kind of read for singing um and i can read charts for guitar but that's about it um, mm -hmm. um so it's really easy for me to feel in fact, took me a long time to ever uh, identify myself as a musician because I thought, no, that musicians are like people who really know what they're doing. And I just kind of like play songs and, and get by. Um, and it was, it was ironically, when I was in Los Angeles on the TV series Fame playing an English guitar student and in Los Angeles, to people that you meet there, you are what you play. Right. So I would, be, <laughs> I would go out to clubs because I loved going to hear live music. And this was when, like Jane's Addiction, I saw their second ever show, and oh, wow. and 
Like there was a lot of cool stuff going on in LA at the time. Um, and a lot of those people watched fame because it was on late in the afternoon on Saturdays and Sundays. So either getting ready to go out, you know, waking up and getting ready to go mm. out or the next morning, you know, late afternoon, kind of crawling out from your bedroom after being out all night. Mm. A lot of those guys saw the show. So I played an English guitar rock guy. So I was sort of accepted as that. Um, that was the first time I started seeing people uh, who, you know, I wasn't I wasn't a better guitar player than these guys. I wasn't a better singer. But I, you know, I was okay, and they had like five record deals and stuff. And so I thought, well, I guess maybe I should stop just declaring that I'm not truly a musician, mm -hmm. and maybe I can actually finish some songs that I'm writing, and maybe I can actually like put a band together and play for people who aren't just my friends. And, <laughs> um, and that, and yet. I still found it so much harder to stand up with a guitar and play my songs than it was to play in a huge auditorium as an actor. Mm -hmm. um, part of it, I think, is because as an actor, you know, everything is given to you and you're, you know, you have good writers writing for you and you have a character to hide behind and a persona to flesh out. And so the focus doesn't feel as much like it's on you and you're, what you're concentrating on is... Uh, communicating this writer's idea basically mm -hmm. um, so that that for me makes it easier to deal with the anxiety of being you know in front of a bunch of people when it's me playing my music um, also because the kind of stuff that I was playing and writing often was not as theatrical at all and not as extroverted at all um, so I, I sounded entirely different, and I, especially in the early days, was essentially apologizing for being on stage the whole time that I was on stage, and <laughs> down all the time, and and I eventually started, but when I would play a cover, it would be light years better, mm -hmm. so, and I started thinking about that, and I, I then eventually started trying to convince myself that when I was playing my own songs that it was actually a song that somebody else had written and to try to <laughs> sing my songs like I was covering somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that actually kind of helped a little bit and helped me kind of invest in it a little more and not, and not feel like I had to hide so much. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's a weird question, like how much of it is a performance and how much of it is a, you know, just being you with a guitar. Um, I played a tour as Bob Mould's um, rhythm guitarist in 98. And, you know, he's like the embodiment of DIY right. like punk rock ethos. Mm -hmm. But he cared a lot about the show and about, like, he doesn't do anything. You know, he doesn't wear a costume. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't necessarily uh, perf perform you know, you wouldn't think he's performing, but he's very aware and would talk at the end of the show about, you know, what how the audience responded and, you know, how our energy was as a band, not just like how we played the songs. But mm -hmm. um, and and I think, you know, I think most musicians, they may define it in a different way, but I think they're very aware of performing, mm -hmm. even if, you know, the Ramones were a total theatrical act, even though 
they did nothing but just stand there. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> there's a there, yeah. there's an energy to that. And, you know, even, you know, the Beatles aren't the most, you know, visually entertaining perf- live band you've ever seen. Um, but there's definitely an energy that they put out. Um, and and you know, I think a lot of times when you see a band and, you know, you can when you can tell someone's having like an off night, mm-hmm. you know, and like that energy is not quite as I guess um, it's 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 easier to see through sometimes that it that it is a performance, right. um, you know, it, and it's it's a strange place to be, and I almost wonder, you know, to do things like this, you know, like does John have to like understand like that idea of like putting on a performance? Yeah, you know, I think that's something that like as a group, I think they're really good at at performing, and I think that feeds into, I guess, you know if you want to call it the successful film and kind of TV, you know, tear, they go on, um, you know, how familiar are you or were you with their, you know, their film work and their TV appearances and things like that? Um, you know, I would say moderately familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a huge yellow submarine fan, which mm-hmm. they don't exactly appear right. in. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I also like I loved Hard Day's Night, and you know I, I really, uh, it the the silly bits were amusing, but I always found it interesting to be. I would watch their movies, you know, those movies more like trying to catch the actual Beatle, the actual people in the Beatles, mm-hmm. in, in those little unguarded moments because they're not really actor actors. Um, and because they're playing themselves, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I love watching those movies for the little revelations about you know the things that, the things that they do to kind of give themselves away as who they actually are when they don't think the camera's on them or when they're just waiting for their next line or you know mm-hmm. the sort of like uh, the, almost like more of a documentary kind of thing, like where you're actually seeing the person because they're not actors really right i uh you know i I found it really interesting as i kind of started watching those movies when i was younger and then watching them more more and more as i'm older and now with youtube you can see all these clips they were on and uh you know all the b movies that ringo was in in the 70s that you know aren't available anymore (laughs) yeah um i think john and ringo especially have like a really interesting um I don't want to call it a magnetism, but they're very easy to watch on, on camera. Um, and the way that they perform when they're in film, you know, like in John's, uh, how I won the war, even though he's, you know, he's, he's a top build performer, but he's not in the actual movie. Um, but he's still, he's very, uh, charismatic and not playing John, which I found very interesting. Um, you know, and I, I think, you know, looking at, they talk a lot about in their songwriting, you know, being having an understanding of things like literary construction and a background in, uh, you know, in Shakespeare and, and, you know, even McCartney has said, you know, the, the lyric, um, in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make was like an intentional attempt to write like a Shakespearean couplet. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think having kind of like a background and appreciation in literature and theater and things like that helped them make this transition uh onto the screen that you know Elvis didn't have that like when Elvis is acting it's 
it's clunky it's weird you know whereas yeah. i think when the beatles do it it just seems a bit more natural like it seems like they're more willing to play does that make yeah. sense yeah and i i agree with you and i think i think it it is a part um i think partly it maybe comes from being more or having less to prove or feeling like they have less to prove um i kind of sense in elvis's movies that he's trying to either somebody has convinced him that he needs to be a movie star or he has decided that he wants to be a movie star but and he's trying to constantly trying to prove himself in that mm -hmm. and the beatles i don't think ever they were never confused about being movie stars they were you know they were musicians they were right. rock stars they this was a you know a laugh or an interesting side thing but it wasn't going to be any significant part of their lives um i think that gives them a kind of uh it lowers the stakes for them and allows them to relax and just be themselves and they are charismatic interesting people mm -hmm. um and and also you know they're introspective people as writers too in mm -hmm. a way that elvis isn't really um and so i think they're capable of that kind of introspective uh looking inward that is always the most interesting thing on camera when you see somebody who doesn't seem to be needing to impress you or convince you of anything and who's you know who's very kind of self uh not self-conscious but but inwardly focused you your eye always goes to that person in a in a screen yeah you know? and i think i think they were kind of those sort of guys they certainly could be extroverted and silly and goofy and all the rest of it but they were you know they were thinking people mm -hmm. i always find it so i always find it really surprising every time i even the movies i've seen uh more often or performances or clips of things that I've seen more often. Every time I watch them, I'm always surprised again by how how real they are. Yeah. Yes, maybe as compared to our idea of them, you know. But it's like, wow, they were, I really would like to know those guys. You know? Right. They were just so inherently charming. Yeah. Like they just mm -hmm. oozed charm all the time. And yeah. I I don't know that Elvis had that. Like he had to try. Like his was is, is an act. Like his was like yeah. he was putting it on, and he had to try to be this. And he worked character. his ass off to yeah. do it. Yeah. yeah. But it, he just didn't. And like he like, has to, he plays so cool. I think yes. is his, is the downfall for that. Yeah. Is Whereas like, the you can only be so cool. Beatles just were cool. Like they just were. Like mm -hmm. he they didn't right. have to try to be. I mean they were like young and cool and you know funny and a. a bit sarcastic uh, you know like and i've seen some clips where like they're doing like interviews with the press and just their their little off-the-cuff quips are yeah. just hysterical yeah. just the little <laughs> oh, one-liners yeah. and you're like oh my god i would never be able to think of that something so funny so quickly like how yeah <laughs> yeah their minds are so quick and their yeah. wits are so quick and it's you know it's like we were talking about before with the the british British youngsters at that time, especially, um, it's it's a very verbal culture, and mm -hmm. you and and no matter you know where you grew up, you were exposed in school to great 
writing and and a real a real uh priority was placed on being articulate being able to you know process language and and use language no matter what your accent was mm-hmm. and it was a real you know being thick and slow was not cool you right know? Mm-hmm. being being able to take somebody down with a snarky comment in you know three words or less was a real survival technique on yeah. the street you <laughs> yeah. know i think that's um, one of the really i think that's some one of the things that feeds into did you have you seen the clip of them doing uh pyramus and thisbe that i sent you <laughs> yeah what, what's your take on that i'm curious i know you've you've done shakespeare have you done midsummer night yes i've done midsummer night's dream like, so a bunch of times well, <laughs> What's your take on that? Because I, I, my thought was obviously it's you know they're just having a lot of fun with it, but I think they had to have a level of comfort and understanding of it in order to take the piss out of it like they do, and I think yeah. that's kind of impressive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that scene is so great because it's a scene that's supposed to be that's being played by a bunch of guys, you know, working class mechanicals who you know, are in way out of their depth trying to perform this scene for, uh, you know, for a big marriage ceremony of the, of the, um, of, uh, Theseus and Hippolyta. Um, so, so it's kind of perfect for people who are not from an acting tradition necessarily. However, to be able to pull it off, you have to have really good acting chops and you have to really <laughs> understand what is funny and what is witty about what Shakespeare wrote. And, mm-hmm. and it's just a testament that, you know, Shakespeare isn't actually some remote removed thing that we think of it as in America so often. And I think British school kids, again, tended to kind of be less intimidated by it because it was just a part of their education. Um, so I think it's not surprising that they they would be able to just given who they are and how quick witted they are and how good they are with words that they would have appreciated what was funny about it and what there was on the page already. And then to be able to, you know, to goof on that on top of it is just because they're, you know, they're just good at it. <laughs> good at it. They're just yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. I love it. So, and then being clever sort of like brings me to like this weird theory I have about the song. I kind of wonder if they sort of like slipped it into the album as like when parents of kids are like, no, you can't listen to this rock and roll. <laughs> they're like, but mom, listen, it's listen to this song. And they play this, and the parents are like, well, okay. Oh, well, that's not so bad. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, were they maybe that clever? <laughs> well, I, I think you're right on because if you go and you watch the Royal Command performance, uh, they do that song, and Paul does his super charming thing, and then John follows it up and goes, "For our last number, I'd like to ask your help. Would the people in the cheaper seats clap your hands, and the rest of you, if you just rattle your jewelry?" Yeah, and then they do twist and shout, yeah, and they're the biggest thing yeah. in the country. Yeah, like yeah. right then. Yeah, that's the moment. Yeah. That's amazing. And they knew exactly that juxtaposition. I love that line. Like, I think you put that on one of the... When we first started dating, he made me mix CDs. It was very Uh cute. And I think you put that clip in a mix CD. And I had never heard it before. And I was just like... What? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, like, like we said, just like two lines 
scathing. Yeah. You know, just yeah. like just but done, cuts but done right with to the wit instead of yes. like, you know, uh shouted from, you know, from malice. The stage. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 kind of recognizing uh that the most subversive thing you can do is is cover things in wit and and still be able to totally land the blow but in a way that you can't be accused of being inappropriate so that mm-hmm. you know you'll get asked back next time <laughs> <laughs> nailed it nailed it so let's put a bow on this at number 196 do you uh, would you put it higher lower what do you what do you think I, if you I, were ranking this catalog uh, it's out of how many 223 I th- I think I would put it a little bit higher. I mean, I, of course, as soon as I would try to do that, I would look at things that were higher and go, "Oh right. well, no." I can't <laughs> yeah. so, so, you you may have arrived ex- at exactly where it needs to be, um, but I just sort of think in terms of uh, the the whole other kind of aspect of them that it points to. I think and the and the place that it has in their. Uh, career trajectory i think i would put it just a little bit higher maybe but yeah okay i agree i mean paul's voice is like butter it really is. it's beautiful you know like it is sort of out of the norm of what you would expect a a traditional beatles song to be um but it's lovely and charming and his voice is wonderful and like you said george's guitar is great and it's what got them in front of George Martin. It, it really, like, they just play it so well. They play it so well. Like, they do. in the hands of, like, the Stones, this would not have worked. No. You know? Or, like, Herman's Hermits, this was not going to work, <laughs> you know? But no. for, yeah, so. For Paul's granny shit, top notch. <laughs> Nails it. <laughs> Nails it. Well, let's uh, let's do uh, some rapid fire questions if, you get, if, you're, if you're up for them. Excellent. Yes. All right, cool. Rap, I'm, rapid I'm, fire. I'm, notorious, I'm notoriously bad at having short answers. As <laughs> Wonderful. So I'll do my best. <laughs> They're never all that rapid. <laughs> uh, That's why you, I could never write a Beatles song. <laughs> not many people can, apparently. Uh, your favorite Beatles song? Oh, God. <laughs> Listeners, you can't see this, but Michael has just collapsed, He's collapsed into onto a his desk. He is a puddle. Oh, man. Um... You go into a desert island in ten seconds. You can only take one MP3. Well, given given where we are right now, I'll say Revolution. Yes, I like it. Uh, your least favorite? Um, maybe Maxwell Silver Hammer. <laughs> That's a common least favorite. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a lot. I do kind of like it, but I don't. I don't think it's my most favorite. Uh, your favorite Beatles album? Uh, it used to be the White Album. I think, though, I think it might be Let It Be. Okay. Mm. I really like that album. I'm really excited about the 50th, well, 51st anniversary <laughs> stuff that we'll get for it next year. Yeah. That'll be that'll yeah. be a, a cool dive on that. Yeah, um, I think it's just like there's so much going on, you know, that's all like laid out there. Yeah. Know? music that it's always fascinating i think yeah definitely do we need to start saving for whatever box set it's going to be yep <laughs> yes we do there's oh, dear. literally hundreds of hours of tape that yikes. they're going to be putting out yikes um this is actually one of my favorite questions 
your favorite memory associated with the Beatles, whether it's with a song or an album or at a show. Um, I mean, you've already had your George Martin story is pretty, yeah, pretty yeah. top. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to beat that, really. Um, I do have, I do have a, a pretty fond memory of sitting in my living room in New Orleans with Paul Sanchez and my girlfriend at the time, Ashley, um, and somebody else. I can't remember who the fourth person was, but it was somebody who's kind of in their in their early thirties, I think, also, um, and. Paul and I just trying to make the case for why the Beatles are so essential and just like you could not have most of the rest of popular music without them. And my girlfriend at the time and uh, and whoever the other person was uh, just not getting it and not being convinced. And <laughs> and they were they were, you know, they both grew up. They were younger. They were, you know, in their 30s. And and the Beatles just were kind of a given and they hadn't had that experiences that we had but that wasn't an excuse like we were, and Paul and I <laughs> trying to explain the the seminal importance of the Beatles to people who just weren't appreciated it but just weren't really in uh endorsing it at right. all <laughs> that's a rough conversation Ooh, yeah <laughs> it was a rough conversation because at a certain point you just have to go it's, it's just because they're the Beatles, right? Like, that's because just it, the it's because it's air is why you need air. <laughs> exactly. And notice how he says she was his. She's now his ex girlfriend. Oh. <laughs> um. Okay. Uh, what was it like getting your first Tony Award from Puff Daddy? <laughs> it was. It was perfect. It could, I could not have wished for anybody better. I saw that clip. I was I mean, like, Oh my god, it's Puff Daddy! Holy snap! Yeah. From from mispronouncing my name to yep. <laughs> and and it was all I could talk about when I get up there they tell you you know you've got 75 seconds before from the time they call your name to get up there say what little you can and then get off the stage before the orchestra starts playing you off mm -hmm. so I used the first chunk of my time just so amazed and and in borderline hysterics that I was on the stage with Puff Daddy giving me <laughs> an award, and and I said something about you know I you know I can't believe I'm up here with with Puff and and I turned around and he goes I and, <laughs> and you can see I'm like trying to keep from laughing the whole rest of the time and then we're walking off stage and at that time he was on um, on Broadway in Raising the Sun mm -hmm. and he was going by Sean Combs. Um, because of the you know the dignity that sure. Broadway conferred <clears throat> <Sure>. upon, <laughs> and as we're walking off stage into the wings, and his like massive bodyguard guys come and surround us, I suddenly think, oh my god, was I supposed to call him Sean? <gasps> and I said, I'm so sorry, man. I didn't know. I you know I didn't know if you wanted to be called Sean or you know or P Diddy or I. But I, you know I just know you as Puff. So you know that's and he said. Nah, it's, it's all right. It's cool. And that was it. <laughs> that's fantastic. But I well, was, at least I was you got like the pass. Those. So that's yes. good. You, you, know, you don't yeah. have to like worry about it to this day. Like, is he still mad at me? <laughs> yeah. Like whenever he is changes he his name, you can just be like, it's okay. He's still puffed to me. 
<laughs> he's still. I was given the pass. I was given the pass. The artist formerly known as Puff. Right. I uh, one last one before I let you go. I meant to ask this earlier. Um, how would you say, or can you say, is there a way that you would you would you would say that the uh, the Beatles have impacted your career, either actor, musician, either way? Um. Yeah, I would certainly as a um, as a songwriter. I mean, I hold their songs uh, up as as examples to aspire to. I think in some ways George was kind of my favorite um, Beatle because he was uh, he was looking for things outside of the band from an early time and and. Um, and also because he was kind of a uh, I don't know he he sort of he was the he was the quiet one um, <laughs> he was you know his solos are so thoughtful and so melodic and so beautiful and and his solo albums are so full of you know real heart and depth and and soul and stuff and just as a person and also his uh working title films and stuff, you know, uh, he did, uh, with nail and I, you know, his film company made with nail and I. So, mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think he was the one I sort of, uh, gravitated to the most, I think because I was just too intimidated by Lennon and McCartney, but I thought, well, I mean, I'm not going to write any songs as good as George Harrison, but at least I can aspire to him as, something that maybe is almost attainable as opposed to Lennon and McCartney who are just like totally over reach. Yeah. yeah. But, but I, but that ability to sort of uh, play rock and roll, but also write melodies and, and just the, you know, the, the chiming sort of, you know, birdsy Rickenbacker aspect. Like I'm, I'm a big fan of that kind of guitar playing and that sure. kind of, songwriting um so i think they had a big influence on me in that way and i think when i when i listen to the songs that i write i can usually point to the beatles element in in every one of them in some place or other mm -hmm. which is probably true of most everybody if they're honest right <laughs> yeah definitely definitely well, man, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Yes. Thank you so much for joining I've us. I've had a blast. I was so daunted when you called me to <laughs> talk about it. I was like, well, I don't really know so much about the Beatles, and I don't really know. I mean, I like them a lot, but I don't I know think if you, I'm a scholar about them. I think all. you had way more insight than you than you thought you did. More than me. <laughs> now you've got you've got a new uh, a new single coming out with Loose Cattle. Uh, I guess it'll be this Friday as the show airs because the show comes out. November 10th. Uh, November 10th. The, and the, oh, yeah. November 13th, uh, the new single comes out. Tell our yeah. listeners what that is, if you would. Um, we did a cover of Bowie and Eno's Heroes, um, as initially at the request of this uh, group called the Path Fund that uh, raises money to um, provide arts education and arts uh, outreach to underserved communities in New York and, and the area up here. Um, so they're doing, they usually do a big live show every year and this year they're not able to do it um mm -hmm. the organization that puts it out is called rockers on broadway it was started by a friend of mine donnie kerr who was in tommy with me and the tommy 
band and and cast used to get together off hours and play shows at the China Club and and uh, and places around town. And Pete would get up on stage and play with us sometimes too. And that was how this <laughs> that was how this thing started. And then it turned into this charity organization, which is great. Um, so they asked us to contribute something. So uh, and asked us to cover heroes. So we're doing our own uh, sort of our own loose cattle version of that with um with special guests andre michaud and joanna divine um, wow from the lost bayou ramblers that's fantastic wow. so it's okay. uh i can't wait kinda, to hear that <laughs> kind of cool version i think we're really really happy with it and we've been doing a lot of remote recording and stuff mm-hmm. you know we had an album that we were gonna put out back in april um on the back of the french quarter fest appearance we were going to do right <laughs> So now I don't I don't know when we're trying to figure out when to put that album out. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the meantime, we're just doing these one-off singles. We did uh, John Cale's "Fear Is a Man's Best Friend" a little while ago. And, oh, that's uh, great! And uh, this one will be out on the thirteenth. Nice. And where can our listeners uh, pick that up? All the all the usual uh, outlets. All you the know, hot your, spots. Your your less less discriminating music purveyors. <laughs> will, uh, <laughs> They'll um, all do it, it if you pay them the upload fee. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be uh, at iTunes and Bandcamp and uh, and all those places. And uh, everything else is going to be loosecattle.com for the music. Is that correct? Yeah. Loose, is it loose? I think it's loose, loose cattle, cattle music band. band? Okay. I'll put it in band. the show notes. I'll... Yeah, because if you, I think if you just search for loose cattle, you get videos of loose cattle, cattle. <laughs> right, on, on the road. Fair enough. Which is not <laughs> unlike us, but, you know. <laughs> It's not actually us. Right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Michael, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. This has been a whole lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed it. I hope you'll uh, come back one day if, you, if you're interested in doing another one. I will, absolutely. We've got two, 195 more of these to do. So, so many more. Oh, you're counting up. Oh, okay, we're, cool. well, we're going down to number, I guess, number one. Yes. Um, right. Yeah, so we've, I think we've got four more years of these shows to do. Uh. <laughs> so... I think I'll be able to squeeze that in. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, man, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and uh, I hope so I hope you're well. It's, it's great to see and chat, uh, chat yeah, to you. Yeah, you too. I'll be, I'll be down in New Orleans pretty soon, I think. So. Wonderful, wonderful. Michael Cerveris, everybody. Friends, what a fun conversation. Yeah. I love it. Man. Like, I love how people come on and they're like, I don't really know what I'm going to say. And then they're like, oh, hey, here's my stories about Pete Townsend (laughs) and George Martin and all the cool things that I do. (laughs) No big. (laughs) No big deal. It's fine. I love it. I love everyone's stories. Well, I I really enjoyed finding that kind of common bond in his upbringing uh, and being encouraged to encouraged to kind of immerse yourself in the arts mm-hmm. and appreciate that and i think that's something have a real that job to fall back on <laughs> right well i think that's something that a lot of successful creatives share is some kind at some point in your youth you're encouraged to like dive into it yeah. not every i mean everyone's story is different but yeah. i think it's it's a common bond in people who are ultimately very successful um, that they get that encouragement uh, but also have that idea of like, if you're gonna do it, you've got to work really, really hard at it. Yes. Or you've got to like be and smart enough then, to have a backup plan. Slim chance. And it's like like John's aunt Mimi used to tell him, uh, a guitar is all right, John, but you'll never make a living from it. Oh. But she he, he was in art school. Like she encouraged him to pursue the arts. Mm-hmm. 
but also be cognizant that it's very, very difficult. Yeah. So. I think that's a healthy balance. Yeah. Healthy balance. I think in celebration of this episode, we should go watch Ringo Starr in the movie Caveman. How about you go watch Ringo Starr <laughs> in the movie Caveman, and I'll do literally anything else. Oh, come on. <laughs> All this talk about Beatles as actors. We can watch Give My Regards to Broad Street. Ooh. <laughs> Which one is the one uh, that El Vanillo talked about where he was like, uh, where he played like a like Mexican or something? Oh God! With uh, candy, yeah, it's weird. He plays a Mexican person uh, with a really horrible accent. Oh goodness, Ringo! Yeah, it's it, it's not his finest choice no. as an actor. It's no. it's it's no Thomas the Tank Engine, Mister mm. Conductor. Yeah, yeah, he really peaked. <laughs> well, what do you guys think? What do you? Well, what do you all think? What is your opinion? Till There Was You at number 196. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you love this song? Do you hate the song? Is it your favorite? Is it your least favorite? Um, what's your favorite Beatles film? Since we're talking film and acting and movies and TV mm-hmm. appearances, uh, do you love A Hard Day's Night? Do you love Help? Magical Mystery Tour? Where John's shoveling spaghetti onto Aunt Jessie's plate? What's your, what's your number one jam? Uh... Let's talk about them in the comments on the Facebooks and the social medias. And uh, let us know your opinion, because we like to hear that. Um, if you've enjoyed the show today, go ahead and leave a uh, review for us on your podcast provider of choice. If they let you leave reviews, we would thoroughly appreciate your finest five-star review. Five stars only. <laughs> Otherwise, it will be tossed. Jeez, oh, every week we're going <laughs> to You knew it was this. coming. You knew it was coming. Oh, boy. Um, be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. Tell all your friends about ranking the Beatles. You all have that one friend who loves the Beatles. You know you do. You know you it's do. It's true. It's tell true. Them, tell, tell them about the pod. Tell them about it, Steve, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and go check out Loose Cattle's new single. Yes. Heroes, the David Bowie song. Love that song. Uh, out this Friday, November 13th. Links in the show notes. Anywho, we will be back next week with a brand new episode. How about that? That sounds great. Awesome. I don't know. That's fine. All right, gang. (laughs) We're going to wrap it up until next week. My name is Jonathan. And I'm Julia. This has been Ranking the Beatles. Adios. Bye, y'all.